Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Evergreen's online service. I hope that so far in our service, you've really been able to connect with God and to just spend a little bit of time in the presence uh, of his spirit. This morning, I'm pretty excited uh, because we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm not really, I mean, I'm going to preach to you, but I'm going to do it a little differently. It's going to be me and you, Jesus, and our Bible. That's what we're going to spend time with this morning. We're going to go uh, through three different chapters in 1 Corinthians. We're going to deal with an entire chapter in the book of Isaiah. And then we're going to deal with some passages in the book of James. And uh, it's really important that we actually begin to interact with this book. And so if you don't have a Bible with you right now, if you don't uh, have it on your phone, if you need to go get your physical Bible, uh, I'm reading from the NIV uh, this morning. And so if you have an NIV, I would recommend that that's what you use. If you don't, that's perfectly fine. But we're just going to give you a moment to grab your Bible and then join us for today's teaching. you're back with us and you have your Bible in your hand, just let me uh, give us a little bit of a warm-up before we dive into the teachings this morning. First of all, let's just take a moment and let's just pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for the scriptures that were written to us, that were written for us, that were written to guide your church, your people, to reveal you to us. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we interact with your word, written today by Paul and by Isaiah and by James, that that, that empowered word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would penetrate our hearts and our minds and would transform us by your living grace. So, Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, Lord, as we interact with your Word, I just pray that our hearts would be opened and our ears would be opened to hear what it is that you have to say. In Jesus' name. Just as I give us some background into what we're going to be dealing with today, you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be dealing specifically with chapter 10, 11, and 12, and we'll be interacting with the scriptures to see how Paul goes about tying this teaching all together. You can earmark your finger into Isaiah chapter 1, and you can also earmark your other finger uh, into James chapter 1, because that's just some of the places that we're going to be going today. Over the past several weeks in this sermon series, we've been dealing with the vision, the New Testament's vision 
of the church and more specifically Paul's vision of the church because Paul dealt with the merging of Jew and Gentile, which absolutely blows my mind that he could merge two people groups together uh, in Christ, that he could call them to unity rather than uniformity. And we've been giving you this picture of a tossed salad. Now, I'm not going to reiterate the whole tossed salad concept, but I think it's really important that you understand that basic foundation, that the church is for all, that Jesus died for all people. And so he reveals himself to people and calls them to salvation through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit. And so uh, it's important to understand that the church is a tossed salad, a mixed group of people that come from many different backgrounds that all have the Holy Spirit saturating their lives, living in their hearts. And that Paul calls us to this radical unity that actually, frankly, just seems impossible. Last week, Tamil and I uh, had a conversation and we talked about how we really believe that God is calling our church to a posture of listening in this season of all the craziness around us. And so this morning, I want you to take that posture of listening, a posture of learning, and a posture of hearing what the Spirit wants to say to us through his word this morning. Now, with that tossed salad in mind, I want to transition in this in this series into uh, some of the practical pieces of how the Apostle Paul actually interacted with his churches and how he taught them to go about gathering together. You see, in Scripture, gathering is a super important concept, something that um, we're struggling today, I think, as a church uh, as a whole church, as the universal church, to really define uh, what is the gathering, what should the gathering look like, uh, and so on. And everybody's got their different flavors of this. Everybody's got their different mindsets around this. Uh, and I'm not in any way today going to tell you that your mindset around the gathering is wrong. But I do want to go into scripture and take a look at how Paul informs us about our gathering. Because I think that this call to listen is linked directly to how we have gone about gathering, specifically how the North American church has been gathering. And so Paul has a church that he planted in a town called Corinth. Now, Corinth was a very wealthy town. It was a very thriving metropolis. It was the city. And Corinth the church that he established there was a mixture of Jew and Gentile, and, and uh, it had a lot of amazing gifts. It was a very gifted church, a very talented church. In a lot of ways, in today's picture, you could see the church in Corinth as kind of one of our famous megachurches, whether in Canada or in the U.S., where they have, you know, amazing uh, worship bands and amazing talents that are happening and huge staff and huge facilities with the, the lights and the, and the fog and all the things that, uh, that some of you would frankly define as important for our gathering. They have all of it. They have all of it. All of it is in place. And not only that, not only do they have the best music, not only do they have the best lights, the best media, all of those things, they have the preacher of all preachers. So, so they're a church that was 
was planted by the Apostle Paul himself. And then the church was turned over by the Apostle Paul because that's what he would do. He would plant and then he would turn the church over. And he had spent about a year in Corinth. And he hands the church over to a man named Apollos. And Apollos was the preacher of all preachers. He was a gifted communicator and people loved to listen to Apollos. And earlier on in 1 Corinthians, we hear the dynamic, the unhealthy dynamic that is happening where some are following Paul, some are following Apollos, but many are struggling to actually follow Jesus. They're lining up with the man, the person, instead of with Jesus Christ. And so the Corinthian church reached out to Paul. So I want you to picture this this amazing church, however you define amazing church to be, picture that, and that's the church in Corinth. The thing is, is that because they're so gifted and because everybody wants to attend their church, they're actually struggling a little bit to work through some of the differences within their church. They're struggling with unity, just like most churches do. And so they actually write a letter to the Apostle Paul. Now, we don't actually have that letter, but we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians of the responses that Paul gives to that letter. Now, ironically, not only do we not have that letter, but uh, 1 Corinthians is actually not really 1 Corinthians. We believe, the scholars believe, that there's four letters that were written to the church in Corinth by Paul. But in our uh, manuscripts, in the archaeology, we have only been able to find two of them. Now, the beautiful thing of the fact that we have these scriptures is that Paul weaves through answering a lot of their questions. Now, I have to address that before we move uh, too deep into the teaching as well, because um, you could look at Corinthians in a couple different ways. One uh, is that they've asked him questions. So Paul, here's our questions. Question number one, question number two, question number three. And that Paul then statically responds to question number one, then question number two, then question number three. Here's the thing about reading 1 Corinthians like that. It's not actually the way that Paul writes. He always has a purpose of how he weaves his discourses together and so most scholars believe that the best way to read the Corinthian letters is to uh, take the questions that they may have asked him and to see that Paul is weaving an entire picture together. So he's purposely answering their questions, not necessarily in order, but with a purpose behind where he wants them to land. And so we're going to start in chapter 10 today, chapter 10, 11 and 12. And Paul has just finished a teaching on the need for self-discipline. And he has used the example of being a runner, running a race, and that that is what faith is really like. And he transitions here. At the end of chapter 9, verse 27, he says, No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So he's talking about running a good race, not cheating in that race, but doing the hard training that's required to be a Christian, to run a good race that pleases Jesus. And now he's going to transition in chapter 10, 
And he says, for I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Paul will often take us back to Israel's history. And that's what he's doing here. He's taking us back to their history and he's saying that our ancestors, don't forget that our ancestors were under the cloud. The cloud was the presence of God walking with them. And so they were under that cloud, living in his presence, and that they all passed through the sea. Now that is a imagery back to the Exodus, where they where God parted the sea and they were able to walk through. And so Paul is right away establishing, don't, don't uh, be ignorant of the fact that we lived in God's presence and that we watched and saw and experienced and lived his miracles before our eyes. And he said, they were all baptized into Moses, verse 2, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And so again, Paul is bringing us back to this imagery of the Exodus and the wanderings in the wilderness. That's what he's going to move us to. Now listen to what Paul says. This is really, really important. So the Israelites have left Egypt. They've experienced God's power. They've experienced God's presence. One would think that they would be completely sold out for Jesus, that they would just be like, yay, God, look at how God has worked in our lives. And that's not actually where Paul goes with this. He says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And you'll see this in Pauline literature. You'll see the way that Paul writes is that he reflects back and reflects on how the Israelites often had really good intentions, but often missed the mark. And so often they would do the things that God called them to do, but they actually, it would be meaningless to God. And so he says that because of this, because God was not pleased with most of them, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So this is the scattering in the wilderness and the 40 years of wandering. Now listen to what Paul says. He's bringing this up for a reason. He says, now these things occur as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now keep in mind, Paul is teaching the Corinthian church, a New Testament church, and he's using history to talk about how they go about living their faith and the things that we should learn from the past. So he says all of these things, all of this narrative in the Old Testament about Israel, they were all things that occurred as examples to keep us from seeing, setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So Paul's linking They're straying away from God based on them buying into evil things. And then he says in verse 7, and this is a very pointed, uh, very, very pointed language in the Greek text. He says to the Corinthian church, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. 
and do not grumble, he says. So this is typical Paul. He's walking us through a bit of a list and then he's bringing us back to history to show us where these things happened. And so he says, don't grumble because the Israelites spent a lot of time doing that in the wilderness as some of them did because what actually happened to those who were grumbling is they were killed by the destroying angel. Now, Paul says in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. These things happened to them as examples and they were written down as warnings to us. On whom the culmination of the ages has come. And so now Paul shifts to a warning. See, the Corinthian church knows that they're a pretty cool church, that they're a pretty good church, that a lot of people want to attend their church. And so Paul gives a a very quick correction here in verse 12. He says, so based on Israel's history and based on the fact that these are the chosen people who have witnessed God's presence directly, who have witnessed his miracles directly, and they still strayed away. God wasn't pleased with them. They were sent out to to 40 years of wandering. He said, based on all the things that happened to them, if you think that you're standing firm, if you think that we've got all this figured out, if you think that your view of the way that the gathering of the church should be is the perfect view, be careful that you don't fall. Now, I think Paul's giving us this warning in deep love. See, he loves this church. And so he's saying, listen, learn from our history and don't do what our ancestors did in the past. And when you think that you've got it figured out, when you think you're standing firm, that's actually the time that you should be being careful because you're susceptible to a fall. Susceptible specifically to idolatry. And then Paul says, no temptation. And this is incredibly hopeful, folks. He says that no temptation, because you will be tempted, you will be tempted to idolatry. Idolatry is is the centerpiece of sin. It's the thing that we fall into, the worshiping of idols, the, the, the worshiping of self, the worshiping of all kinds of other things, other priorities over Jesus. That's idolatry. And he says that no temptation that we will often experience has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And Paul says, therefore, a transitional word, therefore, everything I just taught you about Israel's history and the warnings that I'm giving you about thinking that you're standing firm, he says, therefore, because God's in this, My dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from putting other things above Jesus. Now, I need to address that for a second. Because idolatry in a person's life can be very subtle. And when it comes to our church gatherings, which we're going to see that this is actually what Paul's talking about. When it comes to the gatherings we can actually become idolaters about how we gather. We can actually become idolaters about the kind of music we sing. We can become idolaters about the kind of preacher we want to listen to. We can become idolaters about the fellowship that we experience in church. He's begging us. You will be tempted 
to put things above Jesus. But God will always give you a way out so that you can make Jesus the center of your life, the center of your gatherings. And so be careful, he says. Flee, run, run away from idolatry because idolatry is what gets everybody in trouble. Now, that being said, I want to jump over to the book of Isaiah and I want to give you a little bit of context about the Israelites and about some of the things that Paul is talking about here. In Isaiah chapter 1, he says, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them to you, but they have rebelled against me. He's talking about the Israelites. And Isaiah, a prophet, a prophet was there to call the people back to obedience, to point out their idolatry and to say, this is what you need to do to come back. And so Isaiah says, the ox in chapter, in verse three, chapter one, the ox knows its master, the donkey, its owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. In other words, Israel does not know God the way that they've been called to know God because they just don't understand because they're being caught in idolatry. They're putting other things before God. Now listen to the powerful words of Isaiah. He says, Woe to the sinful nation in verse 4, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, Children given to corruption. God's talking through Isaiah about his own people, his own children. He says, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Now, it's interesting because we don't have time to dig right in verse by verse through this, although I'd love to. But it's interesting to see where Isaiah then goes with this. You see, Israel was called to live their lives by the law. And there was a system that God had given them on how to reconcile, to, to, um, to be reconciled, to be made right with God. And so they had to follow this sacrificial system. And in Isaiah's time, the Israelites were following that system. They were attempting to follow that system. But Isaiah is going to talk a little bit about how they're going about following that system. So in the context of our gatherings, it's like Isaiah is talking about how we go about being Christians and meeting and gathering together. Because the Israelites, that's what they did through the law. Now he says in verse 11, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? So these sacrifices that you're making, that they're doing, What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lamb, lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Listen to what Isaiah says to them. So they're they're trying to live the law and they're doing that. But then God is saying, actually, how you're living the law is not pleasing to me. It's becoming useless. It's becoming meaningless because there's nothing behind it because you've built this idolatry life that puts everything before those sacrifices. And he says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Our gatherings, folks, can actually become 
meaningless. He goes on, Isaiah does, to say your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. If we jump to verse 15, he says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. So here is Israel. Here is the history that Paul is calling the Corinthian church to listen to, to pay attention to. They put other things before God which made their works of the law meaningless, which meant that God wasn't listening to their prayers, that God wasn't pleased with the actions they were taking in their religion because they were meaningless. They weren't coming from the right place. And that's why Paul says, flee from idolatry, flee from, from making things more important than God. Now, in the Christian faith, Christians were given a freedom from the law. Christians were freed from this oppressive law that the Israelites often lived their lives under. But this newfound freedom became challenging to the early Christian church. And so Paul, as he addresses uh, in chapter 10 about drinking the cup and how drinking the cup is so drastically important, which we're going to get to in a second. He then says this, you know, I have the right in verse 23, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. So we might have the freedom, we might have the liberties to do certain things, but not all of those things are actually beneficial to us. I have the right to do anything, Paul says, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek. Now, I want you to hear this. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. You see, part of idolatry is about seeking things for you specifically, not being others-centered, but being self-centered. And so if our meetings, if our gatherings become about us, then they're meaningless. Now, let's jump ahead. In chapter 11, Paul introduces that he, he goes on with this concept and he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's verse 1 of chapter 11. Now he moves into a teaching on head coverings, which that's a whole nother sermon someday. But what I want you to get from that is, is that Paul really wants to dig into how they're going about meeting and what their motive behind their meeting is. So I want you to see how all this connects. Now, if we jump down to verse 17, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Now, this is interesting. So, this is the church of all churches. This is the church that is full of many spiritual gifts, and the gifts are functioning in their church. But you're going to see how Paul corrects that. And he actually says that your meetings do more harm than good. You have lost your witness because of the way that you're doing your meetings. So he's warned them, learn from the history of Israel, don't be idolaters. And he's moving them into a conversation around their meeting and how their meeting has become idolatrous. Now, 
What Paul does is he weaves through this and he says in the first place in verse 18, I hear that when you come together as a church that there are divisions among you and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Now he's going to get into communion and he's going to do that for a reason. Now, I have to fast track this a little bit. Here's what I need you to understand. There's division happening in their church. There's separation happening where the rich and the poor are not having everything in common. They're being separated. I want you to picture this. You know our potlucks that we, uh, you know, many churches love to have and that we used to have all the time. Imagine gathering for a potluck, except instead of a potluck where we share all the food, at, uh, at this potluck, you get to eat what you brought and you get to eat what people at your table brought. Now, one of the beautiful things about potlucks is actually it doesn't bring the church together. What happens is, is we have, church, we have uh, uh, tables and friends gather together at those tables. And it actually doesn't bring the fellowship that everybody thinks that it does. Uh, but that's a whole other story. I've been ranting about that for six years. Here's what's happening in Corinth. The rich people are coming because the Lord's Supper was a full meal. It wasn't just a little juice cup and a little cracker. It was a full meal, a full celebration that they would do together. It would take all day for this to happen. And the rich are coming lavished with food. And the poor are coming with barely any food. And the rich are eating and drinking to the point that they're getting drunk. And they're completely ignoring the poor. And so what Paul does here is he says that, that is doing more harm than good. You're not getting what the gathering is all about. And so now Paul gives us a teaching on how the reason why we gather and how we should go about gathering and what the centerpiece of the gathering of the Christian church should actually be. And we know it as the Lord's Supper as communion. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the bread and when given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Now here's the key. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul is teaching us here that the centerpiece of the church gathering is remembering why we gather in the first place. Is remembering the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That if Jesus is not the center of our whole reason for meeting, if Jesus is not the centerpiece of everything that we're doing as Christians, that we have lost our way. We gather 
to remember. We gather to give praise and honor to our holy God who sacrificed his life for you and I. And you see in Corinth, and I really believe in our culture today, the gathering became about other things. The gathering became about the feast. The gathering became about the music. The gathering became about the entertainment. The gathering became about fellowship with our friends. But all of those things, when they're not centered in Christ, when the reason we gather is not centered in Jesus, it does more harm than good. Now, it's super interesting, quickly, what Paul does here. Because he calls them out on the nature of their gathering and he says, you're missing the point. You're becoming idolaters. The gathering has become about you rather than about Jesus. And whenever it becomes about you, that's idolatry. Now, we get things from the gathering. Of course, we get hope and we get to to be right directly in the presence of God because the Spirit is living in us. But that can't be our motive. Our motive can't be to receive those things. Our motive needs to be to pass those things on to others. And so Paul says that when your gathering is correct, if it's been corrected and it's centered and, and in the Lord's Supper, then this is what happens. He moves into a teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, how the body begins to function. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 12, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work, that unity, that oneness in Christ. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Remember I said in an earlier sermon that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the edification of the body. They're for building unity in the body of Christ. They're not for individual uh, uh, glorification. They're for the church. They're for our witness. They're so that we can function as the body of Christ. And so if you're gathering is is centered in all the wrong things. The gifts will never function in your gathering in the body because you'll be a ranch dressing uniformity-based salad or you'll be a separated salad like the Corinthian church was doing with communion. You see, communion is what launches us into the gifts because it's centering our lives in Christ. And we have made communion a, a ritual that doesn't please God. We've made it something that we just go through in a service and we can't wait for it to be over because it's just something that we do. But actually communion is about correcting your idolatrous ways. It's about correcting it by remembering what Jesus did for you and I. And when that happens, when Jesus is at the center of your meetings, the gifts of the Spirit given by the Spirit as needed. You don't own any gift. The Holy Spirit owns them all. Given as needed, builds the body up and gives us witness to the world. And we don't see the gifts functioning properly in our churches today. Often 
They're skewed like they were in Corinthian. That's what he's going to go in to teach. In Corinth, they were skewing them to be about themselves. If this person had this gift, they were better than that person that didn't have that gift. That is not the way it works. Now let's jump back very quickly to the book of Isaiah. Because when our meeting is right, something very specific happens. We learn to do what is good. And we can only learn to do what is good when we're centering our lives in Christ. Because we're naturally prone to idolatry. Now listen to what he says. Right after in Isaiah, he has said that he's not listening to their prayers. He says, your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. This is verse 16. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. It's wrong to meet, to gather, and make that gathering about you. That's idolatry. And then he says, learn to do right. Now, this is super interesting. What does the Bible say is right? Now, many of us would get into ethics and we would say, well, you shouldn't do this. And Paul has this list that tells us about this. But Isaiah gives this to us very plainly. Learn to do right. Doing right as the church, as God's people, is this. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plea the case of the widows. When our lives and our meetings, our gatherings, are centered in remembrance of Jesus and who he is and the work that he did on the cross, we learn to do good. And learning to do good is others-centered, not self-centered. James, the brother of Jesus, James, in the chapter one, where we dealt with the passage of learning to listen and being slow to speak. If you jump down to verse 27, says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. What should our religion look like? To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see, being polluted, we keep oneself from being polluted by the world because the world is all about idolizing something other than Jesus. And so, folks, our meetings, our gatherings, they can't be about us. They have to be centered in Jesus Christ. And then we learn to do what's good. And so the manifestation of the Spirit working in, in the body of Christ then leaves the church building or leaves the home group or leaves whatever you've defined your church gathering to be. And it moves into doing what is good. Seeking justice. Offering hope. Showing mercy. Caring for the poor. Not separating the poor so the rich can feast and the poor starve. It's about unifying together in a diverse body centered in the Lord's feast, the Lord's supper. And so I'm begging you, just like Paul begged the Corinthian church, don't make our gatherings about us. 
Don't make your life about you. Make it about others. You'll get plenty of benefit from others-centeredness, folks. But the hope that rests in the cross of Christ is that he died for all of us and that he wants his church to be a witness to the world. And I fear that we have lost our witness. Learn to do what's right. Learn what Isaiah is teaching, what James is teaching, and what communion teaches us. It's about Jesus. And when it's about Jesus, we seek justice. We defend the oppressed. We take up the cause of the fatherless. And we plead the case of the widow. We're going to transition in our service. And I'm going to turn things over to Tamil. And she is going to lead us in centering our gathering in Jesus Christ. Thank you for taking this time. And I really want to challenge you. Dig into what Paul is teaching us here. Read around it. Read all of 1 Corinthians and get a picture. See how he links these things together. Our gatherings can do more harm than good when we make it about us. But when we center it in Christ, the spirit works in the body. And we see the manifestations of the spirit, which move us toward doing what is good. Thanks for joining us. You and I have been invited into this incredible story of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's a story of death and resurrection. It's a story of hope and freedom. It's a story of reconciliation with God and with each other. But as Pastor Jeff spoke about this morning, we all have a tendency to get distracted, to fall into idolatry, to get consumed with our own agendas, and to let our lives drift away from that focused center. So as we prepare to take communion together this morning, let's take a moment to open ourselves up to God's presence and to ask the Holy Spirit to show us areas of our lives where we've gone off course. Where in your life have you turned your attention away from Jesus and shifted it towards yourself? Where in your life do you need to repent and to receive God's grace and his healing? Let's take a moment to hold these things before God now. There's something really powerful about being able to be honest about our failures and being able to name things as they really are without feeling the need to get defensive or to pretend like we've got it all together. The truth is that we're all broken. We all mess this up. We're all on level ground before the cross. And yet God is so rich in mercy and he offers each one of us his grace. So let's join together in saying this prayer of confession, trusting in the grace that God extends to each one of us. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. 
Psalm 103 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Receive this truth this morning and know that you are loved, you are forgiven, and you are welcome at God's table. In some more traditional churches, there's a practice that people do right before communion that's called passing of the peace. And the way it normally works is people shake hands with each other and they say, peace be with you. And it's really just this symbol, this way of uh, expressing how we're called to live with one another all the time. It's a declaration of the reality that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have peace with God and peace with one another because Jesus is our peace. Now, it goes without saying that it's going to be quite a while before we're shaking hands with each other again. But right now, I want to invite you to turn to someone beside you, to send someone a text or to write a message in our online chat, extending God's grace and peace to the people in your community. May God's grace and peace be with you. Now let's join together in remembering Jesus' death and resurrection as we share in the Lord's Supper together. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat this bread together, remembering Jesus' body, which was broken for us. In the same way, Jesus took the cup, blessed it, and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we drink this cup together, let's center ourselves in the reality that we have been united with Christ through the new covenant in his blood. Amen. Now, would you join me in declaring our faith together as it's been proclaimed for generations through the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life.
Thanks for being with us this morning. We hope that this has been an opportunity for you to center yourself once again in God's presence and to realign your heart with the good news of his kingdom. Now may God, who is the source of hope, fill you completely with joy and peace as you trust in him this week. Amen.